0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Peoples and Things, where we explore human life with technology. I'm Lee Vinsel. Were you a mall kid? Oh man, I was such a mall kid. Me and my crew, which was primarily Casey Coughlin, Mike Pisker, who I call Biscuit, Ramon Diab, everyone called him Mo, and sometimes my brother Jake. Oh my God, we would just spend hours wandering around the mall, especially in junior high. Hours and hours wandering around and doing nothing, BSing, trying to get deals in the food court, looking around. And then sometimes we would walk across the parking lot to a store called Leisure Hours, which had comic books and role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons, but we mostly didn't play D&D. We were into games like Shadowrun, White Wolf, and Rifts and the whole Palladium series. Comic books and role-playing games. I know you cannot believe that that's what I was into back in the day. I just know it, you would never believe that. And then in high school, I still went to the mall and I started hanging out at the record store Camelot Music because I had a crush on a girl who worked there. She was so, so dreamy. And I would make her mix tapes full of like Britpop and gothy industrial music, tapes full of sad, romantic songs. Oh, so sad. The incredible longing. And then I applied for a job there and I got it. And I worked there for years. You remember that movie, Empire Records from 1995? Sometimes it was kind of like that. I'm not exaggerating. It really was. Malls, the mall, the American shopping mall, formative for me and many others. And that's why I got so excited when I saw the recent book, Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of the mall by author and design critic Alexandra Lang. I've been following Lang's work for several years now. I really like her architecture and design criticism whenever I bump into it. And I also like some of her early books, including The Design of Childhood How the Material World Shapes Independent Kids. Just like its title says, Meet Me by the Fountain is a history of the shopping mall, but I think it is an exceptionally good one, including because of how well it explains how the mall became its own kind of culture, including in the way I was describing about my own youth and how malls ended up in media, such as the movie Dawn of the Dead and the TV show Stranger Things. I also just really liked the writing in the book. Lang is able to seemingly effortlessly weave together multiple themes through rich examples and sentences you will want to read. I had a wonderful time talking with Alexandra. I bet that will come across. Hey, get excited. much for taking the time to talk to me today
1: thank you for inviting me my books are definitely about people and things so
0: it <laughs> it's totally sense. true yes <laughs> all of them <laughs> uh you know i can't wait to talk to you about this book
1: if you were
0: explaining it to a stranger if you explain it to strangers when you do that what do you say about it and what were you trying to do with it
1: i usually say it's a book about the history and the future of a, the mall because if i mm-hmm. just say i'm writing a book about malls then people say oh you're writing about dead malls and that's actually yeah. only a teeny tiny part of it and if you know anything about me you would know that i wouldn't want to write a book about dead malls like i don't want to <laughs> write about things that are over you know like i yeah. i definitely come from a design background so the like the books are trying to do something the same way that designers always trying to do something so writing about oh, dead malls wouldn't I don't think, have that energy. So, yeah, so history and future of the mall, and then people are like, is there a future? And then, you know, blah, blah, blah.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I love that. So I want to, let's just dig in right on that right away. I mean, like, so how do you see your intervention in, like, thinking about the future of the mall? How do you think about yourself in that?
1: I really think I was trying to show that the mall is and was a site of creativity and that one that has creative yeah. potential because I think, you know, dead mall photography has really been a viral thing, and it can yeah. be very beautiful, but it doesn't go anywhere. You know, it's it's like about this thing that is past, and yep. we admire it's. I mean, often like we're basically admiring its symmetry, its neoclassical architecture, and yep. and these like the detritus of commercial culture. But you don't have to do anything after you've looked at that photo. And the photos don't really necessarily make you think about what it means to have a dead mall in your town as this drain on the tax base, as a place often um, where people set fires, like they can be quite (laughs) dangerous. Um, Yeah, yeah, they're bad. Yeah, like it's it's bad for a town to have a dead mall in it. Um, And I feel like the dead mall photography, like, doesn't necessarily raise any of those points. So like one of the things I talk about a lot in the last chapter of my book is like, what are people already doing with dead malls? Like, what are the good points of dead malls? Like, you know, how can they be reused? So, you know, I want architects to be like, yes, I got a dead mall project, you know, like, to have that kind of energy (laughs) about it, rather than thinking like, oh, this is so boring. I mean, I've been yeah. talking with, uh, you know, the heads of a couple of architecture programs about doing a dead mall studio or, or a mall studio yeah, yeah, yeah. that would inevitably have the students try to design something for a dead mall site. And and that's also part of what I'm trying to say. Like, there's so much focus in architecture education, on new build construction, on yeah. building things in exotic places. You know, I'm I'm traveling with your studio and I'm thinking, you know what, like on route one outside of town, there's a giant dead mall and let's do something about that.
0: I'm with you 100 percent. It's funny. You know, I live in Appalachia and, um, you know, I could I could take you on a driving tour where we could just take photos of beautiful, decaying houses, old houses (laughs) from like the 19th century and stuff like that. What gets me most more excited, actually, is when families in the valley I live in put beautiful new metal roofs on old barns, you know what I mean? And yeah. it's like, it's not a symbol of death, actually. It's like, how do you continue life in this space? And I feel like sometimes we get too caught up on the the, the corrosion and not like on the the other signs, I guess, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, corrosion can be very beautiful. You know, there's this long history of artwork, like ruin porn is not new. Uh, But I I also feel like we have to understand the consequences of letting things be ruins and think about how they can, you know, meet today. I mean, people still need houses and those old houses, like have a lot of qualities that you can't really find in new houses, materials, details, et cetera. So like, yeah, I think we should rescue them, too.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, you know, so y- the subtitle of your book is An Inside History of the Mall, and I I always, you like, you, you have a number of good puns in this book, actually, so I was wondering if inside history, uh, what are you doing there?
1: Well, uh, you know, the the trick of the mall was to create these incredible semi-public interior spaces in the suburbs yeah so um yeah that was just a little wink on like what what was like the technological advantage of the mall it was that you could have like beautiful temperate temperate environment all year round um yes yeah. i have to i have to credit my editor with coming up with both the title and subtitle though um i mean i love <laughs> it it's the kind of thing he emailed it to me one day and i was like Yes, that's perfect. That's Thank it. you. Like now, yeah, yeah, now I don't have totally. to stress about that anymore because the working title for this book was just American Mall and we always knew we had uh, to change it. But uh, right. it was like, you know, are we going to go poetic? Are we going to go super matter of fact? My last book was very matter of fact title. That was it, like the, the design of childhood was the placeholder title and then we just decided to go with it. So interesting. Yeah, this All one right. is more poetic, I think.
0: Yeah, it is. Um, So we're definitely going to talk about this great book, but first I want to ask you, was there a special mall in your life as a youth?
1: (laughs) Well, I grew up in Durham, North Carolina, Um, and in the intro to the book, I sort of go through my personal history with malls, Um, but I mean, were they special? Like, I, I think the interesting thing about the malls and the triangle area was that they were really very ordinary. Like they were yeah. just your average mall in an average size city. They were very important to me as a teenager, but there wasn't anything yeah. particularly special about them. You know, they yeah, were doing well, their I mean, job. I, I, yeah. <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah. I think, I think that's right. But what i mean what was your relationship to the mall Uh, as a teenager
1: yeah well i mean the mall i spent the most time in as a teenager was south square mall which has since been demolished and the stores i really remember going there were very you know peak 80s stores like i would go to the b dalton i would go to the gap i would go to the limited and then i would Mm -hmm. meet my friends after at the movie theater there to go to various movies and There was, yeah, I mean, there was always a question about whether they would let us into the R-rated movies or not. But right, right, that was a big deal. Right, there's a tiny frisson. Like, are we not going to get in this time because somebody decides that, like, they know we're not old enough to go without our parents? So, yeah,
0: (laughs) (laughs) that was exciting. I remember those times well. Okay, so how did you come to write this book after the design of childhood and these other things you've done?
1: Uh. After the design of childhood, you know, I was in the state that I'm actually in again now of kind of like casting around like what's my next book project. Yeah. And I actually had a I had a book proposal for an entirely different book that I was working on, but I also was keeping notes on my computer actually in my draft emails, um, about how I felt like there was something happening with malls. I had written a number of articles for curbed about malls um partially in reaction to the opening of Hudson Yards um but also yeah. in reaction to this mall designed by Renzo Piano that opened in the greater bay area um a few years ago mm-hmm. and i just i felt like there was something there you know like often i'll end up writing three or four articles about a topic and i'm like there's something there that i keep trying to like scratch my way into i'd also done a piece on um the history of pedestrian malls um because okay. i felt like there was so much discussion about you know shared streets uh that yeah. was completely ignoring this history of pedestrian malls because they are seen as a failure but in fact we were just kind of recapitulating that history um again yep, yep, yep. and and they don't right, have again. to be a failure and trying to explain like which ones are not a failure kind of thing so anyway uh-huh. so i'd written all these pieces and I had in my the back of my mind, oh, okay, maybe after I finish this other book that I am proposing, like I'll do a mall book. Like this was kind of like mm-hmm. my backup plan or like the next book, like in the future. How nice that I have like a project after my project to think about. But then I took that other proposal to um, my editor and the team at Bloomsbury, who had had published *The Design of Childhood* and write, had right of first refusal on my next book. And they were like, we love this idea, but like, we don't, we don't think we can make it work. Like, it's just, Mm -hmm. we don't think we can make it work, but I'm sitting there in a meeting with them. And I know like, you should never leave a meeting with a no, right. You should always like have another idea. So I was basically like, oh, you know, like semi crushed inside. Like, oh, you don't like this idea. I was like, so convinced it was going to be great. I was like, well, I have this (laughs) other idea. (laughs) (laughs) to write a book about shopping malls. And they were like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I really feel like they're building new shopping malls, but everyone says the mall is dead. And we're in this moment where, you know, the 80s has really started to become history. And there's so much more like thinking and writing and analysis of this period, because now it's 40 years ago. Like, I, I think there's room for a mall book. And they said, hmm, okay, like come back to us with a proposal. So I went home and I kind of I wrote a proposal in like two days. I, I've been working on my wow. the other book proposal for like six months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, but, right, right. But I just I put a proposal together using a lot of the material that I'd already, you know, written for curbs. Um, and in fact, talking about Stranger Things, which the, the Stranger Things yep. Mall season was then on the air. So I was like, okay. here, here are other people from my generation who are also trying to make art out of the mall. Yeah. Um So I put that together and they were like, yes, like this book. (laughs) And I was like, okay, like, let me, like, let's do this. I guess maybe this is a better idea. I mean, I don't know. Like, I think all the ideas end up being folded into your work, even if you do them like straightforwardly or not, like, you know, all the ideas end up getting written out. Um, Because honestly, one of my other ideas for a book that didn't even get to the proposal stage was to do a book on teenagers. Um uh-huh, and uh-huh. several people like told me that that would be difficult for a variety of ways. But now I see that the mall book is totally a book about teenagers. It yeah. just doesn't, yeah, you know, yeah, say yeah. that on the cover. So, I feel like I right. covered I covered what I wanted to cover in my hypothetical teenager book in the mall book.
0: That's great. Yeah. <laughs> I also wanted to so I wanted to ask you how does one become a a design critic? First of all, and <laughs> second, uh, I wanted to I wanted you to talk a bit about um, you know how you how you experience your career in these different parts of your writing life, right? Because hmm. like like you and I were kind of talking about bef- er, before we press record. Um, I know you mostly from your books. I've seen them reviewed. You know, I bumped into your books for for quite a while, but then, like, you have this whole other part of your life where you're doing, like, design criticism. So, yeah, how does one become a design critic, and how do you see it all together?
1: Well, I mean, you become a design critic by declaring yourself a design critic. Like, I, I mean, <laughs> right? I've, been, I've been a freelancer, you know, since the age of 25. So, like, whatever yeah. titles I have are titles that I've given myself. And I guess mm-hmm. I you know, I used to have architecture critic in my bio and for a while that's um right. when I was writing for Curbed, I was their official architecture critic, which does that mean anything? You know, it was really helpful yeah. when I had to email people and say, I need a tour of your building, like I'm the architecture critic for Curbed. Like that's where it's right, 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 right. and then I changed it um like a year or so ago to design critic because I really felt like again I was doing lots of things that weren't necessarily about buildings and I just wanted to make sure there was yeah. room for that in my bio um yeah yeah but, but yeah mean, how does something... one become yeah. one like first of all nobody yeah. wants nobody wants us you know i mean <laughs> like
0: <laughs> okay yeah like
1: nobody wants you nobody wants to pay you but like you're moving through the world and like there are a lot of things wrong from uh like visual design perspective, user interface perspective, yeah. architecture perspective in the world. And if you happen to notice those things and have the skills to describe to other people what's wrong with those things, then you just yeah, yeah, are yeah. a critic. Yeah. And I know I at least like feel like <laughs> obligated and motivated to try to help people understand things in that way.
0: Yeah. And um, but you've done like freelance writing since you were young, it sounds like. I mean, you've done that hustle.
1: Yes. Well, I mean, the the trajectory of my career is basically I um, I was a literature and architecture major in college and I was the arts editor at the college paper. And then I moved Mm -hmm. to New York and I had a job at New York magazine for about five years, which was like the best journalistic training. (laughs) And then and then I went back and got a Ph.D. in architecture history. Um, And when I came out of that program, I was like, now I don't want to just be like a general interest, culture writer. Like now I want to be a critic. And so I really tried hard to find venues that would let me write criticism, you know, that would want it to be in my voice, my opinion, um, rather than the kind of more, um, you know, anodyne, like journalistic presentation. Uh, yeah. So yeah.
0: That's cool, man. So <laughs> this uh, this book involved, you know, one of the things I like to do on this podcast is like highlight the kind of work we do to make make books, you know, like that's one or just works, the kind of works we cover. So like, you know, as you put this is this involved a multi-year study. So like what'd you do? How how did you do research for this book?
1: <laughs> well, there um so I wrote most of this book during the pandemic. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: I I I literally started work on this book in January twenty twenty. And holy
0: smokes. Yeah.
1: And I spent about two months um basically reading the whole histi- historiography of previous small books, like just so that I had right. like that history. Um, and I, I had a shelf in one of the reading rooms at the New York Public Library, which is great because, you know, it's like you can fill up yeah. the shelf with books and you just go there and you read them. And it's like very, it's very good for process to just feel like, OK, every yeah. day I'm going to the library and reading something. So I did that. And then I went on the first of what I hoped would be many mall tours. I went to Dallas mm-hmm. and toured North Park, which is the topic of the second chapter of the book. Um mm-hmm. And, you know, like, did my interviews, did all those tours. And then I got back from that. And I think the next one I was supposed to do was go to the Mall of America with my family for spring break. But the pandemic happened. So I just, you know, canceled all these plane tickets, canceled all these hotel reservations, etc., and I had to kind of come to Jesus talk with my book editor. Like, I'm not going to be able to do these tours. Like, I had no. all of these ideas. Like, I was going to, you know, do walkthroughs of all these malls. And he said, you know, like, I know why you want to do those. That's a very magazine journalist thing to do, to have like the yeah. walk and talk. But that's not necessary for a book. And in fact, like in many cases, you're not talking about these malls now, you're talking about these malls as yeah, they yeah, yeah, were yeah. at the time of opening. So can you, by using other resources, still get at, you know, that those scenes in a mall, but from another time? And it turned mm-hmm. out I could. And in fact, like this was a great book to be working on during the pandemic, because I could access... So many library resources but i also you know spent a lot of time on youtube watching you know dead mall videos yeah, yeah, yeah. watching vintage tv living mall videos living right? <laughs> yeah like dead mall videos living mall videos vintage tv footage of like when nice. x mall opened um wow. you know i have a whole section on mall wave so there were all these workarounds that like i don't i think ended up you know making it a better product but i was able to access so much from my house which i mean thank you everybody who's like digitizing and uploading and like making things available Yes, i know (laughs) i just like want to say that up front yes (laughs) but yeah i felt like i was consulting like lots of different kinds of sources and getting the spatial information that i needed but i could actually do that from home during a global pandemic.
0: Yeah. Uh where did you choose to start your history of the shopping mall and why?
1: Uh it starts with American Dream, the giant mall in northern New Jersey because American Dream, you know, is literally in my backyard and i mean like yeah. And also it had just opened right before the pandemic at perhaps the worst possible time to open a new mall. So it seemed significant, both for its news value as you know the, the largest shopping mall in the United States mm-hmm. and for its sort of doominess, like, is anyone going to go there? Like, can it survive, et cetera? So I just felt like here's, like a dramatic and newsy place to start the book Hmm.
0: and when you think about the history of the shopping mall when, i mean where do you start that history so i mean you know there's like the in in france there's arcades and there's these yeah. other kinds of shopping yeah. forms right but the, sh- the american shopping mall is like a thing that comes about when when do you, when do you start that history
1: I mean, the the official's history starts in 1956 with Southdale in Edina, Minnesota, which was designed by Victor Gruen, who is the father Mm -hmm. of the shopping mall. So that was the first purpose built indoor shopping mall um, that sets the form as we know it with a giant Mm -hmm. parking lot and two department stores and an indoor court um, called the Garden of Perpetual Spring where you could eat at a quote-unquote sidewalk cafe. Because Gruen was a, a Viennese emigre, he fled the Nazis, and he had this idea that you could have Viennese cafe culture in the American suburbs.
0: Yeah. And so, there, yeah, as you mentioned before, there have been other histories of shopping malls that ta- Gruen is a known character in some circles. Would yeah. you Did you find him appealing as a character? Was there anything <laughs> new you wanted to say about him? Or how do you feel about him?
1: Yeah, it's so it's so interesting. Like I knew I had to start with the book with him. Like that was just right, inevitable. Exactly. But I felt a very heavy burden of him being probably the most written about person in the whole book. Like and in general, right. I don't like to write about people who have been most written about. It's like they don't yeah, yeah, they don't yeah. need my help. And also like in the, (laughs) yeah, yeah, sorry. I I think that is actually how I think it's like, who needs my help? Like if they don't need my help, if other people have written about them, if other people will inevitably write about them because they check all these boxes, like, uh, you know, I'll just write about something else. Um, But like, so Gruen was problematic because there had been many things on him, on him. Like there's an excellent episode of 99% Invisible. There's an excellent biography called Mall Maker. Um, yeah he was out there, and yep. so i really I struggled in that chapter to feel like I was saying something new, and mm-hmm. I think the way I tried to do it was to really focus on the theme of weather, and so like grew in yeah. not as sort of grew in not as the inventor of the mall though he was the inventor of the mall. But as as part of this kind of narrative of the mall overcoming weather, and like that's why yeah. we needed the mall. So just to frame the narrative slightly differently and in a way that I didn't think other people have. So I'm telling you the same facts, but I'm telling them in a different order with a different thematic push.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think it also just feels fresh because it's in this larger story yeah. arc you have.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. The the other thing I did that actually um, was important to me is (laughs) I mentioned Gruen's first wife, Elsie Crummick, who really like was an essential partner in his firm up to the point where he went off and did the malls. Like all of his early work in stores and department stores was with her as a partner and um i mean i do consider myself a feminist historian so i definitely like try to weave the stories of women into this story that yeah, you do like yeah. if you're talking about real estate and shopping and malls like it it's very easy to make it a super male-dominated story and like i don't mm-hmm. again i don't want to write a book like that someone else will write that book
0: yeah <laughs> well you kind of teed up part of the next question actually okay. so i mean uh you know, I wanted to, I wanted to talk to you about, yeah, I mean, Gruen, obviously, like, he's already thinking about gardens, but then you have this nice chapter that really kind of goes into the garden metaphor in a broader way. So, you know, like, how are malls, how were they, maybe still are, like, gardens? And what's that mean?
1: Yeah. Well, the most obvious way they're like gardens is in that connection to 19th century arcades which leads back to the connection to the 1850 Crystal Palace in London, which is a, mm-hmm. a glass house based on this um glass conservatory architecture. So so many mm-hmm. malls that have like this giant glass roof and have plants inside and the fountains, etc., are really based on these 19th century British conservatories. So they're always yeah. meant to be this garden initially like in the like hustle and bustle of the city but but ultimately like this garden within like the blacktop environment of the suburbs um Mm -hmm. so there's there's that aspect to it and then as i began to think about it i also began to think about malls as a place that needs to be tended in a lot of different ways and that really makes it different from a lot of other architecture um Because, and this is where the whole maintenance discussion comes in. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's
0: about, and women's work, actually. And That's women's what work, I, I yeah, you're right. Yeah.
1: So it's, um, I mean, the individual stores need to be tended. Like, I, you know, I, I watched the videos of, um, you know, when SNL used to have that uh, those Gap Girls as a character. They did oh, yeah, a lot of skits yeah. with the Gap Girls, and, and yeah. they would actually fold the sweaters as part of the skits. Yeah,
0: and, yeah, yeah. And like
1: folding sweaters <laughs> at the gap is mall maintenance, right? Like keeping your Absolutely. store perpetually 100%. feeling fresh is maintenance. So that's one kind yes. of maintenance. Then there's the yep. overall kind of cleaning regime. Like it was really important yep. that malls be a cleaner environment than downtowns. Um, and like the good mall architects really thought hard about, you know, materials that would stand up to wear and tear that could be mopped every yeah. day, et cetera. Then the plants, you know, need their own kind of regime of maintenance. Um, and then right. there's, yeah, and then there's just the larger question of how do malls stay successful? It's by keeping the stores in them up to date, and that's yep. also maintenance. That's like the the intellectuality of the mall manager and owner trying to predict like what trends in shopping are going to yep, be. yep, and, yep. Yeah. And what stores you need to keep. I
0: up. love that at angle of that chapter especially, <laughs> but yeah, man, I loved that. I loved it all. I was uh, really. It's funny. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I
1: was just gonna say I was actually kind of worried about the the ma- I don't know the maintenance wing. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like when they came to that because I I feel like a lot of maintenance discourse is pretty anti-capitalist and obviously malls yeah. are capitalist. And so like, I realized that was a little bit perverse, but I felt like it was also a truth. So you just have to like, yeah. live with that perversity.
0: No, man. I mean, I, I yeah, well, people th- sometimes think I'm, I mean, not that I'm not anti-capitalist, I don't know, but like, I you know, I'm interested in the role that maintenance plays in capitalism. And if you're going to have capitalist enterprises like malls are, and the businesses in them are, you got to maintain them to keep them desirability there, and you yeah. know there's maintenance there too. Yeah, and yeah. and it's it's women's work, often underpaid. Um, exactly like it plays out in malls so often, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think, the cleanings. Well, I don't, I don't have statistics on the cleaning stuff in mall, but I think it's yeah. often more mixed and maybe more men, but definitely like. Um, w- Working in stores, working in department stores has always been women's work. Um, And particularly in department stores, it was really this amazing way for women to rise up through the ranks and become professionals. I I just had dinner with a friend and she was like, oh, my husband's aunt was a buyer for Macy's. And like she had amazing taste and she managed to parlay that into, you know, like owning two houses filled with incredible things at a time when most women you know did not have that kind of job so yeah
0: fascinating yeah yeah i mean we're going to talk about my mall rat life a little later but i will say i worked in a mall i worked in a mall i worked at camelot records
1: oh my god camelot records yes
0: yeah 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 so yeah and uh, in high school and um and the reason i got hired at camelot is because i a friend who was working there someone i was getting becoming friends with and uh, she was doing maintenance work on the CD stacks, basically. And there's something you have to do. It's like in when you're in the library, you have to shift things over, like, lines and stuff, like, o- over to next shelves. And I did that just automatically while I was helping her out. And her manager learned that I shifted something. And she was like, we got to hire that guy. He shifts. <laughs> And it was like totally 100% maintenance work.
1: Was that kind of like the librarian gene that it just makes sense to like organize something? Yeah, well, I mean, like you're going
0: to run out of room. You got to create more room somewhere else, you know? Yes. And so it was just like creating balance. You got to shift stuff around. And I just, it just came natural. And they're like, hire the maintenance guy, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So in your chapter, the mall and the public, this, I mean, I, this is another fascinating chapter. And I, one of the things, I have to say, you're a great writer. And uh, I love how you can play with so many themes uh, in a single chapter, you know, but, but in a way that's not dizzying. And so uh, some, I feel bad as an interviewer because sometimes I'm going into chapters and like pulling out one theme to ask you about. So feel free to riff. <laughs> but among other things, you, you talk about um, attempts to like bring malls and mall like kind of structures to other spaces like cities, existing spaces, harbors, uh, you know, piers would be like the Chicago uh, version yeah. of that. <laughs> yeah. So like how does that how does that start?
1: developing yeah no that that was a really like fun chapter for me to write because i was actually like born in boston in the 1970s so faneuil uh-huh. hall which was really the first of the like downtown adaptive reuse malls opened when i was a kid and every time somebody came from out of town to visit us we would go to faneuil hall yep. and it was always super fun like i mean this was really in the heyday of it And like all the things that Ben Thompson, who's the designer of Faneuil Hall, said were going to happen, happened. Like it was like a Mm -hmm. festival every day. There were jugglers, there were food carts, like there were good smells, like it was super fun. So I I felt happy that I had a sense memory of it as it was the way it was supposed to be, because honestly, like it's a bit sad now. Um, It's very like it's very touristy. It's being mismanaged. I mean one concept I had for doing a mall studio was a Fix Fanuel Hall studio. Um oh, I love and honestly that. The, I love that. the the first fix is going to have to be to rename it because Fanuel was a slave owner and so there um yeah there is a movement to do that. yep, Which yeah. should be successful. Anyway, so um yeah, there was this period in the 1970s where the in- <laughs> the entirely predictable outcome that the malls in the suburbs siphoned shopping energy out of center cities happened. So mm-hmm. the cities wanted yeah. to get that back, like get those shoppers back. Yeah. Um, and in some cases, they built essentially suburban malls stuck in the city. But in better cases, they took historic architecture and tried to make urban malls that were more connected to their environment. Um yep. and the and the principal person who did this was um the developer James Rouse helped by Ben and Jane Thompson um, the architects and planners. And so they did mm-hmm. three major projects, Faneuil Hall, South Street Seaport and Harbor Place in Baltimore. And they all had yeah. this combo of like local businesses and um an interesting historic setting. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I loved it. I mean, and in I've been to Harbor Town and uh in Baltimore, I mean, I you know these are places I connect to, and I want to talk to you. I, I mean, the the I I have these connections to Cleveland, and um, mm. the the one in Terminal Tower they did, they like read to this mall in the basement of Terminal Tower. Um, it was a very interesting reuse, but it had a, a kind of sad story that I want to talk to you about in a oh. bit. So, uh, I so, and actually it comes up in the next, so the, the next chapter is, um, you know, I felt triggered by whose mall is it anyway, was okay. like <laughs> triggering for me as a mall rat from like the nineties. Yeah. Uh, so how did you, yeah. Tell me about this. There's so much I want to ask you about this okay. chapter, but tell me about how you came to write this one and
1: what, yeah. you
0: know, what you cover.
1: Well, that, that's really the teenager chapter because yeah. it's like, we identify malls with teenagers But teenagers are constantly being kicked out of malls. I mean, this is actually like a very happening story today. I was literally just interviewed by um, WNYC for a story on this mall in Paramus, New Jersey that instituted a new like curfew policy for teenagers. Okay. So there's always been this push pull between like who who needs the mall, you know, like as a safe public space where they can hang out and, you know, meet their friends and not spend too much money. And who the mall owners actually want to be there, who tend to be yeah. the moms of those teenagers, because they have more disposable income, and they're not loud and they're not going to mess every, anything up. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Um, I felt like it was really important to tease out, you know the history of teenagers and malls, and then I actually found that there had been this long legal history about teenagers malls and malls and public protest in malls. Um, that was really fascinating to me, like not a legal scholar, but, you know, an excuse for me to read all these Supreme Court decisions. And it really, I think, I mean, the most interesting thing about that chapter for me is that the issues around whose mall is it anyway, what can you do Mm -hmm. in a mall, like, you know, how public is a mall, I think are super relevant for all the discussions of public space that we're having now. Um, So malls are just a microcosm of a larger of larger questions about, you know, who has a right to the city? Where is protest allowed? Like, what are we really doing for teenagers? Yeah, Um, because there was this
0: classic there was this classic criticism, right, that they were like public squares, but they're not.
1: Yeah. I mean, they're not public, but um, I've described them as semi-public or they are often when all goes well they can be treated as public and used yeah. as public. But right. when things start to go badly that's when the like private property rights and yep. mall cops get called in and that's when you're like, "Oh, we've been using this as a public space. We don't have any actual public space in our town." But we we're not like we the voting public is not setting the agenda for this space.
0: Yep. Yep. No, it reminded me so much of my teen years because my friends and I were mall rats and would just get dropped off at the mall for hours. And we were never we were nerds. I mean we were not disruptive. <laughs> I was also know?
1: a nerd, so yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we were not disruptive. But my friend Casey, he he discovered this hack at the in the food court where like places would have free refills, right? Uh-huh. And so he would he would just get free refills all day. Yeah. And then inevitably, it was like restaurant after restaurant changed their free refill policy <laughs> because of Casey. Oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That yeah, is,
1: yes, that is classic. I mean, I think <laughs> being able to go to a place and, and spend, you know, whatever a coat cost back then and sit yeah. and wander and stay all day, like, is the essence yeah. of Maldom. And one of the things I talk about in a later chapter is how there's an evolution of like what that one food item that you're going to spend your $5 on, yep. or $2 on is, but there is always something kind of sugary <laughs> for yes. you to spend your money on. <laughs> like it's never healthy. It's either yeah, greasy yeah. pizza <laughs> or some sort of drink with 5,000 calories.
0: Yeah, 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 and like, um, yeah, like you know, going at your pretzel with nacho cheese or whatever. It's yes. like, or or very greasy Chinese food or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Yeah, and then like shops, like you know, the other vivid memories I have from that period, other than hanging out in bookstores, is like Gloria Jean's, like pumping out coffee smell into the, you know, like often like flavored coffee smell because it was like the '90s and everything was like super dark roast, but it was like. Hazelnut dark roast or whatever.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I know. I talk in the book, I think, about how about Cinnabon and and I wanted to kind of get to the bottom of the like were they actually pumping out the flavor? And and they were. Yeah, yeah. Like it I was always like, is that an accident or is it, you know, part of their competitive edge? And it is in fact part of their competitive edge.
0: It's it's really yeah. true, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um so there were two malls i mean one of the things i wanted to talk to you about briefly in this whose mall is it anyway Is also about race and stuff like that so and just get, like pick your mind about this so there were there's two stories i wanted to tell the first is that there were two malls in town there was this uh mall called jefferson square mall and then there was another louis louis Joliet mall louis Joliet mall i lived in Joliet, illinois oh, yeah. and um uh Two things in my memory. First of all, in Jefferson Square Mall, there was a shooting at some point. Okay. And that basically led to the mall dying, you know, because it became known as a risky space. Mm-hmm. And the, but around, like at least, I mean, who knows what happened with the shooting, but with the the mythology, it was very racialized story, of course. Yeah. And, um, you know, I worked at the other one, which is still living and you can go watch, it's Louis Joliet Mall. You can go watch a living mall video on <laughs> YouTube. And I, it was pretty cool. The other story is this Cleveland story. So, you know, I, I used to hang out there in the summers with my grandparents. They redid the bottom of the Terminal Tower to be a mall. And for a while, it was very successful. You know, like all these people are coming in from the suburbs. And then what happened, the, the reputation became like black teenagers were, were going there after school and hanging out. And like, so white people just like stopped going, basically. And again, how much of that was like firsthand knowledge? I mean, probably very little, right? It was all like whisper networks and stuff like that. But I wondered how, like, if you saw other examples of that kind of stuff ever creep up in the stories you were looking into.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think the best parallel for that Cleveland example you just gave me is um, in the book I talk about the gallery in Philadelphia, the gallery at Market East, which was another Rouse project and was actually a public-private mall project um, built in downtown Philadelphia in the in mm-hmm. the 1970s and I have many friends who grew up in Philadelphia and they would go to the gallery. And part of the reason they would go to the gallery was because it was right over all the the um, train lines that, you know, brought people to downtown to exactly. work. Exactly. But that yep. is also why unlike a lot of the malls in the suburbs, it was more accessible to a broader like economic and yep. racial array of people, and I'm sure this is true in Cleveland too yep totally but so that means that the mall is not necessarily attracting the middle to upper middle class um white consumer that all malls like since the beginning of time have kind of been aimed at and so that (laughs) starts to color people's (laughs) perception of the mall and then May like ultimately make the people who are going to the mall less diverse because in most cases, like the white suburban shopper stops going to the mall, yeah, and I yeah. mean, the irony is that there are a number of like really successful um kind of majority black mall spaces it It's not as if I mean, like this yeah, I can't believe this has to be said, but it's not as if black consumers don't also have money and spend money, but it's yeah. very rare for commercial spaces to like directly try to attract the black consumer. Like a lot of times it's sort of what, I mean, there's the Chris Rock joke that I refer to in the book. Like there's the white mall and the mall where the white people used to go. But some of those malls where the white people used to go are super successful. And I talk about Fulton mall, which is an outdoor pedestrian mall in Brooklyn where I go all the time because it's near my house. Um, which, like, has, like, really, you know, well, pre-pandemic had really high foot traffic, had a very yeah. high, like, per square foot price. Um, but nobody ever kind of intended it as a black mall. But it has yeah. been an important part of, like, the black community in Brooklyn for a long totally. time since the 1970s. So, yeah, I mean, like, I think one of the things that all malls, both urban and suburban, need to do going forward is really like take a hard look at the demographics of this country yep. and stop focusing on such a narrow swath of a population that is in fact shrinking. Amen. Yeah,
0: totally. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the, the example I know of is um, I've I've spent some time in Maryland, especially College Park, Maryland, and uh, that the county that college parks and i can't remember the name of it right now it's some king or prince god knows um uh there's a black mall right there because this this area because of the federal government and and other things have been one of the largest kind of affluent black uh populations in the u.s they have this cool mall that used to be where white people went but now is a very thriving interesting mostly black mall i went and saw a movie there and it was just such a wonderful experience actually so yeah, I totally hear you. We do need to <laughs> these icons of essence that people shoot for. That's always like the affluent white couple. Uh it leads to problems when we yeah, think about yeah. these things.
1: And I wanted uh, yeah, I should oh, mention oh no, I should just mention like later in the book, I talk about the phenomenon of Asian malls, which is a very big deal, especially um in Northern California, and the scholar yeah. Lolo Langamam, who has done a lot of work on Asian asian suburbs asian malls etc and that's all really interesting because like that is one sector where you could really see a lot of financial success and people are building malls specifically for these like majority asian suburbs um
0: yeah that's fascinating
1: yeah
0: yeah. uh dawn of the dead mall yet another um (laughs) wonderful pun (gasps) Uh, I, I, will tell you, I also lived in, I've also lived in Pittsburgh and I used okay. to go to Monroeville, okay. uh, to, I've even like just gone shopping in that mall, not gone like zombie tourism. So <laughs> yeah, I mean like to say what you're up to in this chapter and where does the, the dead mall meme come from?
1: Well, I mean, yeah. So in that chapter, uh, I wanted to talk about like the history of zombies and malls, both in film and in novels, and why those things were so connected. And also talk about how that zombie language has made its way over into the business discussion of malls. Like, it was very fascinating Mm -hmm. to me that, okay, you know, like, dawn of the dead like cult classic extremely gross <laughs> movie i have to say <laughs> but kind of but is like fairly biting social satire for its yep. time like jo- george romero really, like really was going for it with that movie um and it's yeah. quite early in the critique of malls so that kind of sets this pattern where people already like associate malls and zombies and then you start to yeah. see coverage of dying malls starting in the 1990s and they also use this language of zombie malls and one yep. mall cannibalizing another so i i thought yeah, it was yeah, this yeah. really interesting transfer of language from fiction into reality um over yeah, the totally. decades since dawn of the dead which you know it is right. a reference point for lots of people i mean that, that was another question yeah. that i got asked Really frequently when I said I was writing this book, like, oh, are you gonna talk about Dawn of the Dead? And I was like, yeah. Yes, even though I hate, hate, hate horror movies. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So when do when do when does the industry start seeing when does the dying mall become an image, I guess?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's sort of hard to pinpoint because starting in the 80s, people started to talk about malls dying. And, yep. like, they were sort of, like, setbacks and expansions all along. But yep. I would say, you know, dead mall photography and the real, like, mass die-off of malls is really a, like, post-2008 recession thing.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah, yep. that sounds right to me, now that I think about it. Yeah, you have actually, in you know, in the chapter after that... Um, and by the way, I just want to, you know, with this, like... The other thing I, what I like about your project is you're all student of malls that don't die, as we talked about earlier. And so I do want to, for the second time, mention that YouTube video of Louis Joliet Mall that it's, uh, is out there. And it's a non-dead mall. You know, I mean, it's not it's not great. <laughs> yeah. It's not like, you know, there's hardship there. But, um, you know, they, they they don't all die. And I think that's an important message in your thing, too. Because I think we kind of sometimes get too caught up on this dead mall image, Yeah. frankly.
1: Yeah. You know? I mean, what I... What I find myself having to say is like, yes, a lot of malls have died and more will probably be dying. But there is still a class of highly successful malls. Like, we're not going to be a country that has no malls. Like, that's not happening. We're still
0: building malls, right? Are we still building Mm, malls?
1: We're not still building that many malls. but Well, I mean, like, we build a
0: lot of these kind of, like, lifestyle places that you also write about, right? I mean, outdoor, mixed use.
1: And we're seeing those often combined with housing. Like I, I think yeah, like right, if you're building right. new retail in the suburbs now, you're probably building a quote unquote neighborhood with sort right, of like townhomes right, 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 right. and maybe an apartment building, and then a retail district, which is basically yeah. like an open air mall. And they're also yeah. like. I mean, there's still like some very successful older malls that are still doing major renovations. Like I was out in L.A. Yeah. in November and I went to um, Westfield Century City and it mm-hmm. got like a total renovation over the last two years. And it was beautiful. It was hopping like people were doing every mall thing you can imagine there.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh so you also have this kind of in the last chapter, the the chapter after the um, uh, Dawn of the Dead mall one, you you have these kind of three culprits you think are losing, leading to malls to close over time. Do you remember that part?
1: Yeah. Um, let's see. Well, first of all, the U.S. is overmalled. Like, yeah. part of what is happening now is... Is the natural process of the amount of shopping in America (laughs) actually aligning with the number of shoppers? I mean, I I think, you know, like the economy was doing so well for so long that, you know, people were just buying things and it was holding up like an incredible amount of retail that was just too much retail. Like there are charts that compare the number of like, uh, retail square feet in the u.s compared to like other like first world nations and we just had yeah. like twice as much like even someplace yeah. like it was, Aust-
0: sorts, yeah, right? yeah, it was a bubble of sorts right yeah it was a retail
1: bubble so yeah um like some of what's happening is honestly like right sizing for the number of consumers <laughs> that we have so there's that yeah. then there is um the death of the department store which right and the department store in the mall, like, are two, like, are synergistic. Like,
0: yeah, to, yeah.
1: To build a mall, you had to sign up two department stores as your anchor tenants. And quite often, this is a whole complicated real estate thing. But quite often, the department stores actually own the land under their stores, um, where mm. and somebody else owns the rest of the mall which is part of why it's actually hard often to redevelop malls because you have to negotiate with all of these different entities. Oh, sh- it's not uh-huh. like one land use center. I didn't get deeply into that because while I do think it's interesting, I wasn't really writing that kind of business book.
0: <laughs> well, you and I yeah. would be into it. I'm not sure. How the, yeah, I was your, just your like, I don't know how yeah. far down this road I can go.
1: <laughs> so anyway, so but when you say a department store is an anchor tenant, that is, yeah. that is literal. That is like... A business thing you need the you needed these department stores so department stores started to get hollowed out again i mean partially like partially pre-recession just by like changing tastes and shopping patterns people started Mm -hmm. the younger generations preferred to buy things in boutiques and specialty stores and they didn't have the same kind of loyalty to department store brands that say like my grandmother who was a lord and taylor shopper did um so Yeah, there was that change in retail. And then um, post-recession, there's really this economic split. Uh, so yeah. the people who used to shop at, let's say, like essentially the middle and lower middle class department stores, so Macy's, Sears, J.C. yep, started shopping at discount stores and big box stores like Target, Walmart, yeah, Target. And Target. Target. Right, exactly. I mean, Target... Was in fact like kind of an invention to make those people, I mean, who are my people really, like feel yeah. better about shopping in Target and not shopping at a quote unquote nicer store anymore. So, <laughs> right, right, um, right, right, right. So the high end department stores, Saks, Neiman Marcus, Nordstrom, like have like have had their own problems, but have in general been doing better. Than that's
0: interesting. the mid and that's lower market yeah. department stores. Yeah. So you
1: get this basically economic split in shopping. And so yeah. all of these like
0: they're a country, by the way. Yes. <laughs> right, yes.
1: <laughs> right. You get this economic split. And that means that like people are no longer gonna go to the mall to go to the Macy's for their prom dress yeah. or whatever else. And so you have this giant anchor store that's not doing well, and then you have a lot of consolidation and bankruptcies across the industry. Yeah. So those stores close and like once one or both of the anchor stores in the mall closes, like it casts a pall over the whole mall. Oh yeah, mall.
0: totally. I've seen it again yeah. and again. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like the, that's
1: the end. Yeah. It's like, you Unless don't see you it yet. you get something fun yeah. to replace it. And like, yeah. that's one of the things that people are kind of working on now, like what can replace it. It's just, you have these like, you know, simply like dead animals at either yeah, end of yeah, your mall yeah, exactly. and it just it doesn't work anymore it's it it's not fun yeah. like malls have to be like back to the maintenance. thing mall have to be like fresh and well lit and the music has to be yeah, playing yeah, yeah. and the water has to be running or you do not get that kind they of they gotta high. be fun man yeah they, they have to be, be fun. fun yeah
0: <laughs> you know and so like i see i go to malls now and i see like these little trains that drive around i don't know if you've seen these yes like, you i know, have seen like, them yeah, and like there's just little additions, but you know my kids are like, hell yeah, let's go for the train. So like you know, and, you know, got to keep it fresh in that way. Yeah, I totally hear yeah. you. And the other, th- the third cause was just online shopping, right? I mean, that plays yeah. some role. It but plays we've probably some... gone overboard with that too. You know, like that is a factor.
1: Yeah, no, and that that's an important point. Um people thought that online shopping was gonna like doom all bricks and mortar retail and that hasn't happened and obviously like it the percentage of online shopping went up during the pandemic but it's already starting to come back down
0: totally yeah yeah yeah. there's a um at some point i hope to have um the authors of this report that came out of berkeley about retail uh it was like you know it's like apocalypse never was the kind of title but it was like it was just like you know like there, this is much there is change in the industry because of technologies online shopping but also ways retail is shifting technologically but uh it's not not the apocalypse
1: yeah uh and what, honestly tell me about, like, I yeah, yeah well I find a lot of the shopping technology super annoying <laughs>
0: Oh, I mean, like self checkout and shit like that?
1: Self checkout, anything with a QR code. Like, I don't, yeah, I just, yeah, I yeah. feel like pe- retail people like to propose those things as a solution, yeah. but I do not think the average consumer likes them at all.
0: Amen. You yeah, know, I don't either at all. <laughs> Is it because we're boomers, effectively, though? Maybe it's that. But no, I don't think anyone uses that stuff, do they?
1: I don't know. I don't know. My, um, I'm trying to think about my kids. Like, I mostly encounter, like, the QR code thing in restaurant settings. And, like, going out to eat with your family and having to look at the menu on your phone is a disaster.
0: It's dreadful. So bad. How old are your kids?
1: They are 12 and 15.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm just comparing, like, experiences here. I got a nine and a seven-year-old. Okay. Uh, Tell me about postmodern malls. I mean, so, I mean... I just want to make sure we've hit everything because that's another chapter where you you have like people using malls for schools. And I mean, and there's all these redesigns going yeah. on, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. I mean, the example I use a lot because like it's really it's like one of the most positive and the design is nice, too, is um, Austin Community College that took over that's the it. old Highland Mall, um, yeah. which was the first indoor mall in Austin opened in 1970. And, like about ten years ago, the writing was on the wall, and um Austin Community College like bought the mall along with a developer, and they created this really elaborate ten year plan to build it out and Now they are like running the community college at the mall they're they've actually reused a lot of the like concrete and steel infrastructure, which yeah. saved them a huge amount of yeah, money. Yeah, yeah. They built new houses save the planet, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, well, I think that's it. Like, I think the environmental factor is important. Um, Like I do too. There's a, yeah, there's a lot of material, let's say um, in these malls and figuring out good ways to reuse it is really important. A lot of people immediately are like, oh, could we build housing like in the mall? And I'm like, you know, that's, that's not actually for a variety of practical reasons the best use of it. But yeah. you can build yeah, yeah, housing yeah. in the parking lot and you can um, redo some of the retail and you can add space for community colleges or a Y or a library or other things and yeah, still reuse yeah, yeah. those totally. boxes. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, you know, this is, I, I sometimes, I like some aspects of the guy, Vaclav Schmiel's work. And one of the, you know, he's always talking about like, what he calls the four pillars of modernity it's like plastics steel concrete and like ammonia for fertilizers and we don't know how to replace this stuff you know and and it's con- the concrete's a huge generator of greenhouse gases and stuff so yeah, yeah i think any any time we can reuse these structures we should we should be doing that yeah uh What's next for you, man? I say so you're feeling around. <laughs> I remember I just went through that process. So okay. my book, my innovation delusion came out a couple of years before yours did, or at least one. No, probably two. And so, yeah, I, I went through a couple of years of just wandering around and coming up with different book projects. And what, you, what's going on right now? What are you thinking?
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, I th- I feel called to do like something else involving retail, like I feel like at this yeah. point, like I know a lot about retail. I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about retail, and while the mall book is obviously about retail, it's less about kind of brands and shops and other things that I feel like there's a lot of room to talk about so i mean yeah. i I think. You know, I've been trying to have fun with my freelancing this semester. And I wrote um, a piece for The New Yorker about the brand Dansk, which Food 52 has brought back. And I wrote another piece recently about the design of edibles, like both the cannabis edibles, like the packaging nice. and the dispensaries. So I feel like yeah. I'm kind of like bumping around like, like, what. Like, what does what's design that people actually want? Like, how does it feel? Like, what are we looking for? Um, both in the shopping experience and in the things that we're buying.
0: That's cool, man. I would read that book too and (laughs) have you back on the podcast to talk about it, Alexander. I mean, you know, like, I, you know, like, I think we're supposed to hate Twitter because of Elon or whatever these days, but you know, like, sometimes it's done good things in my life. One of the things, nice things it did is it uh, introduced me to you and your work. So I thank Twitter as an infrastructure for being there. And uh, thanks so much for taking the time to come on and talk to me today. It's been great.
1: Yeah, no, this has been really fun.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. You can reach us with questions comments, and suggestions at LeeVinsel at gmail.com or by following me on Twitter at STS underscore news or on YouTube at People's Things. Our podcast is distributed by the New Books Network, the leading platform for academic podcasts, so that you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. People's and Things like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother, Jake Vinsel, for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy, Juliana Castro, for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Joe Ford is the producer for the podcast, and Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. This podcast and other People's and Things programming are produced in affiliation with Virginia Tech Publishing and supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. For the entire Peoples and Things team, I am Lee Vinsel. And most importantly, I wanna thank you for listening. Thanks.